Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles and the Pew Racks before you on pages 33 to 34 as we continue our study of the life of Joseph in Genesis 40. Before we hear God's Word, let's pray together. Almighty God, we are troubled so often, and what we need this morning is to know for sure that you have spoken. So we ask for the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit to make Jesus beautiful and believable to us from this text. Thank you for recording it for us. Please bless us as we hear it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Genesis 40, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me in Egypt, and on that vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand." Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cup bearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. 
grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the living God will stand forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Our bodies are pretty amazing, aren't they? If you look at anything about how God designed us, they're astonishing instruments, astonishing parts of creation, but they can only handle so much stress. Let's break that down real quick. We can survive two to three minutes without air, but if you practice, you can learn to hold your breath for 11 minutes. We can uh, survive just 10 minutes at 300 degrees Fahrenheit. You can endure 30 minutes of exposure to 40-degree water, and you can survive a little more than three days without water, um, but you can only survive about 45 days without food. Here's the point. Your body reaches a breaking point. And I wonder as we read this text, as you hear Joseph's story, if you think about your soul in the same way. We've all asked ourselves the question, how much more can I take? How much more stress can my soul take? Where is the breaking point there? And you may have heard the phrase, uh, it's in songs, it's all over the place, that God will not give you more than you can handle. That is not true, okay? Because Joseph, I'm pretty sure, as he sits in prison, felt like he got a lot more than he could handle. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we were so burdened that we almost despaired of life. He got more than he could handle. So what do we do when life falls apart and when we are just stuck in circumstances? One commentator summed up this part of Genesis well. He said, this part of Joseph's story is about the same old suffering that continues on and on long after we think it should be over. And maybe that's how you feel about your life. When is this going to end? It feels like it should be over. Well, here's good news today from this text. When your hope seems to die, here's what we learn here. Faith in Christ will continue to serve It will continue to trust God's sovereignty, and it will continue to hope and believe in His providence. So when your hope runs low, when you feel like life's given you too much to bear, God tells us that He's going to give us faith to continue to serve, faith to trust His sovereignty, and faith to hope in His providence. First of all, faith serving. Notice how this text begins after some time. It's also repeated there again in verse 4. Now we talked about in Genesis 38 that whole chapter covers roughly 20 years, 20 to 22 years. That's telling the story of Judah and Tamar and what happened to Joseph's brothers. So we're back to Joseph, we're learning his story. We know that he's been in prison for a while, after some time, with no indication that God was still working in him. Now the Lord was with him, he'd prospered him, He brought him to a place of leadership in Egypt, and now he's cast down into this prison, and he's been there day after day. And again, when you hear that term prison, don't think about modern prisons. This is not three hots and a cot, cable TV, none of that. He's languishing in an ancient ancient Near Eastern prison, and notice what he does. He continues to serve. And this reminds us that suffering in our lives 
is always a form of evangelism. You see, God is at work in you and I, in our suffering, to make us more like Jesus. We are conformed to the image of Christ, the New Testament tells us. Part of that conformity to the image of Christ is walking the footsteps He walked. Namely, suffering before glory. So God is at work in us to make us more like Christ so that we can tell more people of Christ. That's what He's doing when He brings these circumstances in our lives. How do we know Joseph was doing this? Well, notice, he's got a relationship with these folks. He's attentive to their needs. He notices the look on their faces. He's spiritually sensitive to where they are. He doesn't come up and just try to solve. He asks a question. What's wrong? And you have to believe that for years he was, he was there knowing these men. And he says, what's wrong? Can I help you? He's spiritually sensitive to their needs. And think about it like this. Joseph hears them talking about dreams. Okay, imagine how that must have landed with him. The guy who'd heard from God, who'd had dreams given to him personally. How easy would it have been for Joseph to say, I don't care about dreams anymore. His dreams probably felt like the stuff of archaeologists at this point. Covered over in dirt, buried. No more dreams for Joseph. They were gone. He could have reverted into where so many of us would in terms of suffering making us selfish. Isn't that what it does? When bad things come upon us, it makes us tunnel-visioned. makes us myopic. And you see what Joseph does is he, he gives us the key to making it through the hard points in life. Instead of his suffering making him selfish, it turned him towards God. It turned him towards others. It made him look outward after he'd looked upward. That's why he, he could say what he said. That's why he served the way he did. So that when temptation comes to us to make our suffering something about us, we have to be able to turn it into God-centered joy that serves others. That's the second thing we see. We see Joseph trusting God's sovereignty. Okay? He could have become a cynic. Oh, you've got dreams. So did I once. How's that working out for me? And no, don't miss the irony here. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, is a good writer. The dreams got Joseph into the pit. And as we're going to see later on, the dreams are what's going to get him out. And he could have been tempted to be a cynic right here. What is a cynic? A cynic is somebody who's going to try not to either be too joyful or too miserable. Different from a stoic. Stoke is just going to say, I'm going to take whatever comes and not let it affect me. No, a cynic's going to say, I'm going to rise above all that because I know better. You're not going to fool with me with all this religion stuff. You're not going to fool me with this Christianity stuff. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've tried to follow Jesus and you say it's just not worth it. Joseph would have been very empathetic with that because he'd had the dreams that we don't get 
He'd had all this, and he could have become this cynic remaining aloof, but he doesn't. And here's the question we have to ask, why not? Verse 9 gives us the answer. They come to him. They say, would you interpret dreams for us? Why would they do that? Because they were high-ranking officials in Pharaoh's court before they were cast into prison. And you can go look in the British Museum and see hieroglyphic texts. You can look at the coffin texts, as they're called, which give us insights into the spirituality of ancient Egypt. Here's the point. In this world, these guys would have had access to the priests of Pharaoh. And in this time, telling dreams was a very lucrative business, okay? So that's how these priests made their money. These guys would have had access to those priests. Now they don't have anything. And they come to Joseph, and he's about to give them a theology lesson by his example and by what he teaches them. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Not to the frog gods, not to the gods of the Nile, not to the gods that are shaped like cat's heads and all over the place in Egypt at this time. Not those gods, not the gods you're used to, cupbearer, baker, officials in Pharaoh's house. The real God. Don't interpretations belong to him. And here's what he has learned. We met Joseph as this cocky young teenager strutting around with his robe on saying, I am the man. Now he's learned. Now he's learned. God is the only one that matters. And that's why he says what he says. Because in the midst of his suffering, he sees an opportunity to glorify God, and he takes it. And he gives them this brief theology lesson in one question. And there's the lesson for us. Why did Joseph get to this place? Because he's going to stay in prison, as we're going to see. Why did he get there? Because he knew He knew what he had been taught by his parents, as we just took a vow to help Tim and Abby do, that the God of the Bible is totally sovereign. His throne is not threatened by our circumstances. Dreams that he gives do not die a slow, painful death. The promises of God are sure because of the one who made them. He rules over everything. His kingdom is not in peril. His reign is not in doubt. Your suffering, my suffering, your sin, my sin does not catch him by surprise. He's never been surprised. He doesn't have to react. He knows all things. And he knows completely because he controls exhaustively. And he controls exhaustively because he knows completely. He has sovereignly predetermined, predestined all things from before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1.3 says. There's nothing that can challenge Him. No throne will come against Him. The gates of hell shall not prevail against His kingdom. It will triumph over all. He rules. He reigns. You cannot challenge Him. You cannot overcome Him. He alone is God. That's what Joseph knew. That's why he said what he said. And that's why God comes to him again and says, 
let me show you that you're a true prophet, Joseph. A little later on, the law is going to be given to the Israelites, and they're going to be given a test. How do you know if a prophet's false? Here's the test God gives, Deuteronomy 13. Does what the prophets say come to pass? If it doesn't, they're not a real prophet. As an aside here, this would be like the time for us to understand this because all kinds of predictions about the world coming to an end and everything else like that. Here's the one thing about everybody in church history that's put a date on the world ending has in common. They've all been wrong, okay? That's how you know there's a false prophet in the house. If they say this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, okay? So this is where Joseph is, God is telling us here he's a true prophet. And he believes in God's sovereignty, so he takes the dreams and he interprets them. But here's what can happen. Final thing. We hear about God's sovereignty, and we begin to have a a fatalistic view. What is fatalism? It's the the philosophy that says, hey, if God's already determined everything, then it doesn't really matter what I do, because whatever God determines is going to come to pass. The Bible does not think that way. It tells us very plainly God is sovereign, and you and I have wills and emotions and affections to make choices. We try to balance those. We try to, like, get them reconciled. You can't. They're held in tension, and God does not make any apologies for speaking to us like that. So Joseph makes use of the means. What are the means? He wants to get out of prison. He's not a sadist. He's not going, it is awesome in Egyptian prison. I think I'll hang out a little bit longer. That's not how he's thinking. So he goes to one of these men and says, hey, I didn't ask for this. Please, only thing I ask is that you remember me. And what does the, what does the cupbearer do when he gets out of prison? I think he did like a lot of people would do. He wanted to put prison behind him. So he totally forgets about Joseph. Now think about this. This is after years they've been together. Three days, Pharaoh's birthday, they go out. Everything Joseph says comes to pass. Imagine what the cupbearer was thinking when his buddy, the baker, got hanged. Oh, wow, that Hebrew guy I met in prison, he knew what he was talking about and then forgot about him. And see, Joseph could have, again, gone somewhere with this. He could have gone to a dark place as he sat there day after day. Three days. He knew what was going to happen. Think about day four when the sun rose. Joseph probably anxious, waiting, oh, this is the day. They're finally going to listen. The next day, the days turned into a week. The weeks turned into a month, and the months kept coming. And again, Joseph could have said, where are you, God? Why did you leave me here But he doesn't do that, and that's because Joseph's story is the biblical story in miniature. The Bible, my friends, is a book about waiting. See, here's what happens. God makes promises to his people that are as sure and as certain. They're more sure and certain than the wood you are sitting on and the shoes on your feet. And here's what happens when he makes those promises. They're sure, they're certain, and they take a while to come to pass. And Joseph waits. What's going to happen to his descendants? We know if you read the Bible, you know what happens with Joseph. He saves the modern, the ancient world. 
He does that and the Messiah comes through the tribes of Israel because he was able to feed Jacob and his brothers. What happens to his descendants? They wait 400 years in Egypt in slavery. What happens after the prophet Malachi speaks? 400 years of silence until the gospel is announced by the angels? What happens in your life? God make prom- makes promises and you end up just feeling like all I do is wait, God. Now I want you to think about it like this. Consider Jesus. He was born and then he worked for 30 years. 30 years in obscurity. Doing what we would call, and I hate this label, blue-collar work. Okay? Jesus had rough hands. He sh- if he showed up at first prayers, you would have smelled him before you saw him. That's the Savior of the world. That's the God-man. I've always thought about the fact that after he rose from the dead, I wonder if some believers in Nazareth who knew him would go around and maybe, you know, 10 years after the resurrection, bring some friends who were visiting and say, see that, that house over there, that plaster work? God did that. That's a house that God actually built when he was here on earth. Here's the point. He labored in obscurity, waiting. The glory he received from his father did not come until the suffering was accomplished, until the waiting was accomplished. He was also a true prophet. That's how Joseph also shows us Jesus. How do we know that? Matthew 24. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Okay, Jesus gets questions from his disciples. What's going to happen? What's the sign of your coming? He starts with talking about the destruction of the temple, and they're incredulous. They said it took 42 years to build this temple. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. What are all these things that he's talking about there? The destruction of the temple. When did that happen? After the revolt in AD 65 and AD 70, Titus Vespasian marches the Roman army upon Jerusalem, slaughters roughly about a million people, destroys the city, burns the temple to the ground, Jesus said those words in A.D. 33. A generation in the Bible is about 40 years. So in about 37 years, that prophecy was fulfilled just like Jesus said. He's a true prophet. But he's also the one who was really abandoned. Joseph was forgotten at the end of this text. But he wasn't really forgotten. God is at work behind the scenes. Jesus was really forgotten. As he cries out the words from Psalm 22:1 on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why he chose that psalm? It was on purpose. He chose that psalm because it's, it's the last time anybody is going to say that if you're a Christian and hear God silent. Jesus got silence so that when we cry out Psalm 22, 1, we would never get silence. We would never get abandonment. He was abandoned on the cross by His Father because, as 2 Corinthians has it, our sin was reckoned to Him. And when God looked at Christ on the cross, He saw your sin. That's why He didn't answer. 
That's why Jesus got silenced. Because when he took your sin and my sin, from that point forward, the Father will always, always hear us. We will never be abandoned. Because he was abandoned for us. Two things as we finish up. Let me say, as you walk out of here, I want you to think about this this week. When the world forgets you, God remembers. One of the beautiful things about the gospel, y'all, is this. You see, the gospel says from the prophets that God has taken our sins as far as the east is from the west and remembered them no more. He forgets your sin because of Jesus. He remembers you. It's because he's sovereign. He knows what's going to happen this week. He knows you personally, and that will undo you unless you understand that the sovereign God who sees all of your sin, all of the dark places, all of the shame, all of the things you would never want on these screens, that same God who sees all of that says, I still love you, I still accept you, you are still precious to me, you are my child, you will never be disinherited because of Jesus. You're never forgotten by him. You're never alone. You may be abandoned by friends. You may feel totally alone. That will happen in our lives, friends. And what Jesus is saying is that he, like the Proverbs says to us, he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the new and better Solomon. He's the new and better David. He's the new and better Joseph. He has gone through it all for you so that he can walk with you through it all. The second thing is this. How do we keep going when life is so hard? How do you keep believing in a God who loves you when there's so much in our lives that seems to tell you he is not there, he does not speak, and he does not care? Let me say three things quickly. If you want to end up where Joseph ended up, you got to start where he started. you got to believe in the sovereignty of this God of the Bible. Don't ever forget that he's going to keep you where he has you until you learn more about who he is. you got to keep in mind the where's and the who's. You and I have circumstances brought into our lives, and God will keep us right there Right there, even when we say, why? He will keep us where He needs us to teach us who He is, what He's like. He's got lessons for us in our circumstances. And He will be patient in teaching us those lessons, but we will learn them nonetheless, my friends. And if you are not grounded and founded in the bedrock of God's total sovereignty over your life, suffering will wreck you. It will wreck your faith. This is not a chance universe that was molded by billions of years of evolution. That's the great modern myth. No, it was created by a sovereign God. It's sustained by a sovereign God. And your suffering is never a surprise to Him. It's part of the plan.
It's a feature, not a bug, of the Christian life. Know his sovereignty, and then accept the trials that he sends. Here's the hard part, really hard. Accepting the trials he sends as not indicators that he's abandoned us, but as invitations to go deeper with Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus more closely, and you are praying for that, it's a scary prayer to pray. Because his normal way, his normal way of bringing us closer to Jesus is to make this life full of trials. So that he strips away anything that will distract us from Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, you walk through your life, you're distracted from Jesus, right? And if God's blessing you today, that's not like something's wrong with you. Like, oh no, if I'm not suffering, does it mean God is like not blessing? No. That comes back to the sovereignty part. He may send you a lot of blessing. Your suffering may not be the same as others. It might not be as acute. But whether he's blessing you or whether you are walking through the furnace, What we must hold on to is that both are invitations to make Jesus known, to show a watching world that Jesus is more precious to us than blessing, and He's better than the worst circumstances can do for us. That's what He's inviting us into. That's what Paul means when he prays to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Sovereignty, accept the invitation. And remember this, friends, God alone gets the glory when we wait patiently in trials. See, it's not natural to do that, is it? Waiting is not natural, especially when you're hurting. It's not natural. And it's good to talk to others about what you're going through. That's ideally what church is supposed to be, by the way. Like helping each other with that. But then, as you continue to walk in that trial, and God continues to sustain you, somebody's going to ask you along the way, what do you have? What do you have that allows you to keep going? That's a privilege to be asked that, isn't it? And you can answer, it's not what I have, it's who I know. It's the one who's walked with me through every step of this pain. Who went before me in every step of his pain so that my pain would never be everlasting. There's a great story about Hudson Taylor who launched the modern missionary movement. He was sent out. He went to China. He was there for six years. This is before missionaries were doing stuff like this. It's the 19th century. He's sent out. <clears throat> he begins China Inland Mission He runs out of funds, and he has to go back to East London where he was sent, from where he was sent. And none of his friends and supporters really took him in. Out of sight, out of mind. That happens to our missionaries, by the way. Here's my shameless plug. Remember your missionaries and pray for them. So Hudson Taylor gets back, and he feels alone and abandoned. And yet this is what he wrote later on about that experience at that time in London. Without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, 
How could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to come? You hear what he's saying? Joseph could have said that. Without those hidden years in Egypt, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth been matured into what God needed Joseph and Hudson Taylor and you and me to be? If he's got you in a trial right now, it's because he is sharpening you for what's next. And here's the deal. It might be worse. But the lessons you're learning right now in the darkness can bring the sunlight if the darkness gets worse. And what you learn here, God is going to use in his perfect appointed time for the next step and the next step until you step out of the realm of faith and into the realm of sight and see Jesus. So as one of my friends put it, delay never thwarts God's purposes It only polishes his instrument. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being sovereign, for ruling over heaven and earth and all the affairs of men and angels. Thank you, Lord, that you know us, and despite knowing us, you love us lavishly. Thank you for a Savior who actually saves, who was lifted up in our stead. So, Lord, As we go forward this week, no matter what you bring us, would we trust you? And would you show us how to walk by faith as we wait? In Jesus' name, amen.